Well, I mentioned earlier, we are in 1 Peter, and we're wrapping it up today. Only 19 weeks is all it took for that short little book. Can you believe it? Well, let me read the text that we have this morning, and today it's just the final greetings of Peter's letter. And here's how he closes his letter. He says, by Silvanus, a faithful brother as I regard him, I've written briefly to you, exhorting and declaring that this, speaking of his whole letter, everything he's written, is the true grace of God. Stand firm in it. She who's a Babylon, is likewise, who is likewise chosen, sends you greetings. We'll talk about what that means. And so does Mark, my son. Greet one another with the kiss of love. Peace to all of you who are in Christ Jesus. It's the word of the Lord. But you're going, hold on. You're telling me we can get something out of that? That closing? That kind of, just those throwaway words at the end of the letter? There's some, why are we wasting time on this? That's just kind of the end, isn't it? Well, you know, uh, Paul tells Timothy that all of God's word is profitable. All of it. For teaching, rebuking, training, correcting. All those things. It, it's profitable for us to study it. So that means, you know, there's probably something here for us too. And I believe there is. And uh, it, it points to some things. But before we even dive in a little bit, let's just start to unpack kind of how this letter wraps up and how Peter closes off his correspondence to the churches there. First, he says, by Sylvanus. Uh, Sylvanus, that's a, another uh, spelling of the word, of the name, excuse me, Silas. So maybe you've heard of Silas from the book of Acts or throughout the New Testament. And uh, Sylvanus is Silas. He was a partner in gospel ministry. And when it says by Sylvanus or by Silas, if you prefer that, um, and some translations actually will say by Silas or through Silas, uh, what that means is that, that Peter sent his letter through him. You know, they didn't have postal carriers back then. You know, you couldn't look a stamp and stick it on your envelope and drop it in the box, put the flag up, and somebody came and picked it up and took it. No, in that day, you had to have somebody actually physically take it. And so Silas was the guy who took Peter's letter to the churches in Asia Minor. It was by him, through him. That language shows up in the book of Acts and other places in the New Testament. And it refers to the courier of the letter. Um, there's also a possibility, though, but there's less support from this textually, but it's still possible, that in addition to taking it, which is almost certain that Silas took the letter, that he may have actually helped Peter write it, that Peter may have dictated it while uh, Silas wrote, or uh, may have just helped, helped him as he did it, but in any case, Silas was the guy who delivered the letter. Now, he might have not delivered it to every church, but he surely delivered it to the first one. And then it would have been circulated throughout that region of northern Turkey and, <coughs> and on and on. But notice Peter says about Silas, he's a faithful brother as I regard him. Why would he say that? So do some people not regard him as faithful, Peter? No, Peter's throwing his apostolic weight behind Silas here. Because when Silas would have delivered the letter, chances are at that first stop, he would have also been the one to read the letter. And then there's a good chance that he would have maybe even done some teaching or clarification on the letter since he carried it directly from Peter to all the people. And Peter's saying, uh, I'm sending this with Silas. And as far as I regard him, he's a faithful brother. So if he's got something to say, it's from the Lord. Trust him. Listen to him. Don't write it off. He's faithful as I regard him. So, so Peter's kind of giving his final instructions and who knows, maybe Silas gave some further instruction when he got there with the letter. 
And then Peter says, uh, he, he sent this letter through him, but, and I've written briefly to you. You know, the, the book of 1 Peter really is a fairly brief letter. In fact, in, in my Bible, it's only about three and a quarter pages, one page turn. And I can go through the whole thing. It takes about, the average person, about 10 minutes to read the whole book of 1 Peter. And uh, Peter says, I've written briefly. Well, if it's so brief, and if you can read it, even if you're a slow reader, probably about 15 minutes, why did it take us 15 hours and 19 weeks to go through it? <laughs> Do you know why? Because this book is God's word. The Bible is God's true word. It is. And, and in fact, the, the brevity with which Peter writes, a couple pages, and then when you consider the amount of theological truth and instruction packed in to those few pages, that it took us that long to unpack it. And, and we barely scratched the surface, if you want to know the truth. There's so much here. Why? Because it's God's word. And he communicates with authority and with power and through his spirit. And so uh, speaking of it being briefly, I mean, to me, that just speaks to the, the truth of God's word. And, and in fact, Peter, uh, as he closes, he says, I've written briefly to you and in what I've written, exhorting, declaring, this is the true grace of God. Everything he's written. It's the true grace. It's the true word of God. <coughs> You're like, okay, he says that, but how do I know that? How do I know this book is reliable? Is, is there anything that would tell me that this really is God's word, let alone God's word to me? Well, I think, actually there is, there's quite a bit of evidence that it really is God's word. And so I think today what we're going to do is we wrap up Peter's letter. He tells us to stand firm in this. Let's talk a little bit about the reliability of this word, shall we? Sound good? I'm going to give you three areas of evidence we're going to unpack together. And um, I won't give you all the evidence because we'd be here for, if you thought 19 weeks took a while, wait till we start unpacking all the evidence, Right. But I'm going to unpack some of it for you that, that you can leave with more confidence than ever that the book you hold in your hand truly is the Word of God. So let's start with this. Let's start with uh, fulfilled prophecy. Because this book is completely trustworthy, and we see it in fulfilled prophecy. I wonder, are you familiar with, uh, maybe to, to start this discussion, let's, let's talk about the Lebanese city of Tyre. Have you heard of that? Uh, Tyre, this is a picture of modern-day Tyre. It's on the Mediterranean Sea, and it's kind of on a peninsula. It reaches out into the sea. And uh, this peninsula that it's on, uh, it's a man-made peninsula. Did you know that? And the origin of that man-made peninsula, guess where it traces back to? Well, we get the story of how uh, God predicted it would happen in God's Word, in the book of Ezekiel. In fact, uh, look back with me in Ezekiel uh, chapter 26. Tyre was an evil city, wicked city, and, and God had had enough of it. And so he sent the prophet Ezekiel. He said, therefore, this is what the sovereign Lord says, saying to the city of Tyre, I'm your enemy, O Tyre, and I will bring many nations against you, like the waves of the sea crashing against your shoreline. That ancient city was in the same place as the city we just saw. And uh, God says, I, I've had it with you, and you're going down. And he goes on in verse 4, he says, uh, you're going to be destroyed, and they're going to destroy the walls of Tyre and tear down its towers. 
In fact, I will scrape away its soil and make it a bare rock. It's kind of a strange, pretty detailed description of what's going to happen, isn't it? I mean, in this day, Tyre is a powerful city. Ezekiel making this prophecy that it's going to fall is a little bit outrageous. And, and look at the detail. I'm going I'm to scrape the soil down to bare rock. But do you know there's more? Look, look at verse 12, if we fast forward a little bit. They will plunder all your riches and merchandise and break down your walls. In fact, they will destroy your lovely homes and dump your stones and timbers, even your dust, into the sea. What's going on here? Why so much detail about what's going to happen? Well, and really, Ezekiel's making a pretty unthinkable statement in this day. <coughs> Tyre is the most fortified city in the world. It had remained pretty much unattackable for about 2,000 years. And now Ezekiel's there saying, uh, it's going to get thrown into the sea. It'd be kind of laughable. It'd be like if somebody came up here this morning and said, oh, Chicago, at least the south side with the White Sox. No kid. But imagine if a prophet came up and started talking about Chicago and said, oh, Chicago, all your lovely homes, all of it's going to be destroyed. And uh, the Sears Tower, it is the Sears Tower, not the Willis Tower. It's still the Sears Tower. is going to be cast into Lake Michigan, all of it. And we're going to scrape you down to bedrock. And there'll be nothing left even of the CTA. Can you imagine? We would, we would just laugh at that. Like, come on, that's not going to happen. But you know what? Ezekiel's prophecy here, God's prophecy through Ezekiel, I should say, it happened. It actually happened. He had said that Tyre would be attacked, and guess what happened? Many nations started to attack it. It began with King Nebuchadnezzar and the Babylonians, and then many other uh, nations and powers after that, and culminating in around 300 BC with the, the attack of Alexander the Great. Uh, Alexander the Great. Um, was just incredibly powerful, and he had a campaign to conquer all of the known world. And eventually, all of his conquests made it to this city of Tyre. Um, and when he got there, and they were on the list, and they were next, the, the thing Alexander did is first he just, he sent in some ambassadors. They knock on the city wall, they go in, and they say, hey, Alexander sent us, and uh, you can either surrender now, or uh, we're going to conquer you. Do you know what they did with the ambassadors? They killed them and tossed them over the wall of the city. Well, Alexander was, he was ticked off. And so he said, well, fine, if that's how you're going to treat my, my people, I'm coming for that city and I'm going to tear down your walls. And then he did. And you know, Alexander actually had a secret weapon at his disposal, the newly developed catapult. And he launched giant boulders into the city wall and totally destroyed it. And then after destroying it, though, what they found is that all the people had escaped. Do you know where they went? There was a little island off the coast of Tyre, about three quarters of a mile away, and they'd all escaped there. And this island also had fortified walls. Well, Alexander, you know, some, some people might say, all right, well, we'll just let them live out on their island there. They're not going to bother anybody there. But not Alexander. He wasn't done. And so his catapults couldn't reach that far. So do you know what he did? He came up with a new plan. And guess what it involved? Tearing down the entire city of Tyre, all of its buildings, all of its homes, and making a land bridge out to this island to where his catapults could reach it and destroy the fortified walls out there. Except that after he tore down all the buildings and used all the timber and everything else and all the rock, 
it still wasn't enough. It didn't quite reach. He needed more. So he scraped up all the soil down to the bedrock and used the dust of that soil to complete their land bridge out to the island. And then he destroyed the island, destroyed the people, and he went on his merry way. But isn't that incredible? How did Ezekiel know that would happen? So many years prior, he said, remind you of what he said. He said, they will plunder all your riches and merchandise and break down your walls. Alexander did that. They'll destroy your lovely homes. They did that. Dump your stones and timbers, even your dust into the sea. They did that. And remember verse four? He said, they'll, they'll destroy the walls of Tyre and tear, it, tear down its towers. I will scrape away, God said, its soil and make it a bare rock. All of that happened. Now, is that a coincidence? I don't think so. And why would God record something like that in prophecy? Well, you know why? To assure us that his word is true. And it's confirmed through fulfilled prophecy. We could spend the whole morning, the whole week, the rest of the year talking about confirmed prophecy in this book, especially as it relates to Jesus. And, and so does that give you some confidence in the word you're holding this morning? It does me. But you know, there's, there's more than that. Not only is there fulfilled prophecy, there's also historical records that we can be confident about God's word. In other words, there's records that are extra biblical outside of the biblical text that confirm its reliability. Um, let me show you this. This is called uh, the Annals of Sennacherib, or sometimes it's referred to as Sennacherib's prison. And uh, this thing is... It's about a, maybe 18 inches or so tall. It has a hole in the middle. It's made of, of clay and inscribed on all six sides are accounts of Sennacherib, the king of Assyria's assaults on all of his enemies. And the use of this thing, they'd create multiple ones every time uh, Sennacherib would conquer a land. They would uh, have this made, bring it in, and they'd put it on a pole and kind of in a public place, people could walk and they could read it and read about uh, the great and mighty and dreadful Sennacherib. And you knew you ought to pay attention and obey him. In fact, he'd also, I won't show you these, but he'd put up uh, stone carvings too and clay carvings of, of people being impaled on poles who had rebelled against him. Kind of saying, hey, if you rebel, this could be you next week. Well, uh, this actually dates to the same time as the writing of 2 Kings 18. And Sennacherib, did you know Sennacherib in 2 Kings 18 makes an appearance in the Old Testament? Does other places as well, but specifically here. And what I want to look at here is that there's an account on this prism. Uh, there's a copy of this prism in Chicago. Uh, they've also found another one that's, I believe, in Great Britain. And I think there's a third they found that might be in Jerusalem. Um, but here's, just compare, let's compare and see if what's written outside of the Bible at that time is consistent with what we have in our Bible a few thousand years later. On, on the prism, on column three, it says, as for Hezekiah, the king of Judah, he refused to submit to my yoke. Here's what the Bible says. Hezekiah rebelled against the king of Assyria. He refused to submit to him. Lines up. Now, by the way, just even before we go on, the Hezekiah and Sennacherib and this place, you know, uh, the place of Tyre, you know, the, the people and places in this book are real people and real places. They can be confirmed with archeology, span they can be looked up on a map. 
But you know, other religious writings like the Book of Mormon, there's, there's examples of, of mountains and people and places that no one's ever found that you can't find on a map because they don't exist. God's word's reliable and it speaks truth to us. But let's keep going. Uh, Sennacherib is giving his, his account of attacking Hezekiah in Jerusalem. He says, I besieged and I conquered 46 fortified cities in, Jerusalem, in Judah. Uh, fortified city would be ones with, with walls around it. Second uh, Kings tells us Sennacherib attacked all the fortified cities of Judah and he captured them right in line. Let's look at the next line. Hezekiah paid me tribute in the amount of 800 talents of silver and 30 talents of gold. Now, uh, in, in this case, uh, in other words, Hezekiah paid him some money so that he might lay off in that attack. Let's see what the Bible tells us. The king of Assyria exacted from Hezekiah, king of Judah, 300 talents of silver and 30 talents of gold. So we've got the same thing here that um, Hezekiah paid some kind of a tribute to Sennacherib, but what about those amounts? That seems to contradict, doesn't it? Uh, the prism says 800 talents of silver. The Bible says 300 talents of silver. What gives? You know, uh, at different places throughout the Bible, there are places that are, are apparent contradictions. And you go, um, there's some tension there. What do I do with that? Well, sometimes you live with that tension, trusting the Lord, knowing he's going to reveal it. But do you know, uh, more often than not, the majority of the time, any of those so-called discrepancies can be easily explained, including this one. In this case, do you know the Assyrians had two different measures? They had a measure of a talent measure that was a measure for precious gold or for precious metals and another talent measure that was for semi-precious metals. Whereas the, the, the Jewish people just had one measure. Well, guess what happens when you... Uh, convert this 800 talents in that semi-precious to the, the regular amount of a talent, guess what that equates to? 300 talents. It's the same. It's just a different measure. It'd be like, you know, uh, using, converting a regular, a regular ruler to a metric ruler. Regular as I call it. <laughs> Not the rest of the world. But it, it's, it's pretty, pretty simple and we can have confidence there. Again, uh, the prism goes on. It says, I locked up Hezekiah, Sennacherib says, in his capital city, Jerusalem, like a bird in a cage. The king of Assyria sent a large army to King Hezekiah at Jerusalem. Uh, the way Sennacherib would attack fortified cities was by means of siege warfare. They would surround a city with their army, and they would basically kind of smoke them out. See, all, all the, the agrarian population would live outside the city walls and that's where they'd, they'd get all their food and then when danger came, they ran inside the city walls. Well, if you forced everybody inside and you had a huge army outside, they couldn't get out, they couldn't feed themselves, they'd, they'd starve and then Sennacherib was a master at psychological warfare. There's accounts of him baking bread outside of city walls, letting it waft over into the city. Just come on out, you can have a bite, right? Yeah, sure. Or uh, they would launch feces, some accounts of, over the wall into the city. Well, he had them locked up like a bird in a cage. And uh, we won't tell the whole story, but he sends a letter in. Hezekiah takes it before the Lord and prays, oh, Lord, we're in danger. We need help. And then we read this in verse 35 of 2 Kings 18. That night, the angel of the Lord. And by the way, I, I think most of the time when you see the angel of the Lord in the Old Testament, most of the time, I believe that's usually Jesus, a pre-incarnate Christ. I, I think that's, 
probably Josh's opinion here as well. That night, the angel of the Lord went out and struck down 185,000 in the camp of the Assyrians. They had them surrounded pretty good, didn't they? When the people got up in the morning, the next morning, uh, there were all the dead bodies. So King Sennacherib of Assyria broke camp and he left. He returned home and lived in Nineveh. Now when we look at Sennacherib's prism and how he wrote this account, look at what he writes. He says, I locked up Hezekiah in his capital city, Jerusalem, like a bird in a cage. And then he goes on to his fourth campaign. In my fourth campaign, I turned to the Chaldeans. Now, you might think, okay, well, what's the point? Every other account that Sennacherib writes on this prism, he says, I sieged the city, I uh, conquered the city, I destroyed its people, and then I moved on to my next campaign. The one exception to him saying that, because he was an incredibly arrogant man, the one exception is this one where he goes, I locked up Hezekiah, I, I besieged the city, but then he doesn't tell us how he got his butt kicked, and he went on, I went, then I went on to my fourth campaign. <laughs> you know, it, it speaks to the truth of God's word. Everything else lines up. Why, why wouldn't this be true as well? Especially when you look at a proud guy like Sennacherib who won't acknowledge his own defeat. And once again, God's word though, even the heroes of this book have some of just their greatest faults revealed to us. It doesn't gloss over anything because we're all sinners in need of grace, in need of Jesus. This book's reliable. There's fulfilled prophecy. There's a historical record, many historical records. That's just one. And then uh, briefly, let me also talk about manuscript evidence, which you could also look at as historical evidence. Uh, when we talk about manuscript evidence, what we're talking about is copies of God's word dating back. And what this tells us again is, how do I know that, you ever wondered this? Because I've wondered this at times. How do I know that what I'm reading here Somebody didn't change it over time. I mean, this is a couple thousand years old, this text. So how do I know the copy I've got is the same as the copy Peter wrote to the people of Asia Minor? Well, uh, we've looked at some examples already, but here's another one, manuscript evidence. Uh, now, let me give you two terms. Autograph, not like your John Hancock, but autograph would be a handwritten original copy of God's word. A manuscript would be a handwritten copy of God's word because uh, before the time of the printing press, you couldn't make copies. Well, you could, but you had to write them by hand. You couldn't pull out your phone and you know, uh, scan a PDF and, and OCR and get all the text out and send it on to somebody. It had to be written and copied by hand. And so the manuscript evidence is key because the reality is of the New Testament and, and really of, of all ancient literature, we don't have the autographs, the original copies. So then you have to look at, okay, well, what about the handwritten copies, the manuscript copies? You know, how many are there? What's the date and time between when the original was written and the, uh, the next closest copy we have? Like, what's the distance in time between them so we can know how reliable it is and what about over time? How, is those, how have those copies changed? Does it make sense? Well, if, if you look at other ancient literature before we look at the New Testament, here's some examples of, of ancient literature. Uh, Tacitus, uh, there's about 20 manuscript copies. And the time span from the original to the, the oldest copy, there's a thousand-year gap. 
Uh, with Aristotle, we have 49 copies, and there's a gap of about 1,400 years between them. With Sophocles, 193 copies, and again, about 1,400 years between the oldest copy we have and when the original would have been written. It's a long time. How about Homer? The Iliad, there's, there's 643 known manuscripts. I think this is uh, as of 2017. And there's a, a time of approximately, the oldest copy is dated within about 500 years of the original. And when you compare all the manuscript copies, th there's consistency of about 95% between all the different handwritten copies in terms of variations. Now, uh, before we keep going here, if you walked into... Uh, ancient literature department of a major university, and you said, I'm not so sure the copy of Homer we have is reliable. You know what happened to you? You'd get laughed off the face of the earth right out of the room. Because it's, it's, it's taken as completely reliable. But now, before we go on, what about the New Testament? How many copies do you think there are of the New Testament manuscript copies? And how close do you think they are in time back to the original? There it is. The New Testament, Greek manuscripts. We have over 5,600 manuscript copies. The earliest one is dated to within 100 years. And some would argue, potentially, some newer findings within 30 years of the original copy being written, of the original autograph. And when you compare all the copies, there's 99.5% consistency. Now, if all of these other ancient texts are considered reliable, don't you suppose the New Testament is? Totally is. And that's just the Greek copies. You know, in addition to the copies of Greek manuscripts, by the way, the exact number, uh, as of 2017, the tally was 5,856, in case you wondered. But in addition to that, there's more than 10,000 Latin manuscripts, another 9,300 other early versions, bringing the grand total for New Testament manuscripts to over 24,000 manuscript copies. I mean, second place is Homer, and that'd be like me, me racing and running in the Olympics. Like, that's how big of a gap it would be between me and the last place finisher. It's not even close, friends. And again, what about variants? The New Testament, it, it's so, so consistent. In, in fact, uh, Frederick Kenyon, he's one of the greatest authorities in the field of New Testament textual criticism. He said this, it cannot be too strongly asserted that in substance, the text of the Bible is certain. Especially this is the case with the New Testament. The number of manuscripts of the New Testament, of early translations from it, and of quotations from it, and the oldest writers of the church it is so large, it's practically certain that the true reading of every doubtful passage is preserved in one or another of these ancient authorities. This can be said, he says, of no other book in the world. And do you know, too, even of the places where there might be some discrepancies, that 0.5%, do you know not one of them deal with a major doctrine of the church? Not one. They're all minor things. This is a reliable word. And it's reliable over time. That's the New Testament. Uh, let me just briefly indulge me for a second about the Old Testament. Do you know, um, if you would go back 100 years ago, uh, the big crit critique would be, well, 
Okay, great on the New Testament. But what about the Old Testament? I mean, there's such a huge gap between uh, the copy we have and the original copy. And like the, the closest we had in the oldest manuscript copy of the Old Testament was over 1,300 years. That's huge. And people would say, for example, we don't know what the original book of Isaiah said. I mean, with such a huge gap of time, there had to be some changes made, didn't there? I mean, 1,300 years of playing telephone, something had to change. There's no way it came through. And then, though, in 1947, there's a shepherd boy out in the Judean wilderness near the Dead Sea, and he's just like little boys do. You know, he's throwing rocks, killing time, throwing them into the cave, hearing echoes. Except one cave, he throws in the rock, and he hears crash. <laughs> Some of you know this story. He goes in to investigate, and when he gets there, he finds uh, a bunch of clay jars and some that had broke, and they were filled with manuscripts and scrolls of ancient documents that had been preserved in that dry, arid climate. Well, archaeologists, archaeologists found out about all this, and over the next several years, they pulled out 100,000 fragments that were pieced together into 800 ancient documents came to be known as, maybe you've heard of this, the Dead Sea Scrolls. It's a great story if you've never read it. You should check it out. But uh, anyway, many of those manuscripts, though, were copies of Old Testament scriptures. And for example, they found a complete copy of the book of Isaiah that was 1,000 years older than the previous oldest copy. Hmm. So if we compare this new copy that's found, it's a thousand years older than the one we have currently. I wonder what's changed. Skeptics would be like, oh, for sure, here we go. We're going to prove this is all a farce now, right? So they started looking at it. And you know what they found? Let's just take one chapter, Isaiah 53, one of the uh, most important prophecies about Jesus in the Old Testament. In Isaiah 53, there's 166 Hebrew words. In those 166 Hebrew words, comparing the, the Dead Sea Scroll copy to one a thousand years later, you know what they found? Uh, they found uh, 17 letters that were in question. Ten of those were just a matter of spelling that didn't affect the meaning in any way, shape, or form. Four more were just minor stylistic changes like conjunctions, and the remaining three letters comprised the word light in Hebrew. And uh, doesn't change the meaning of the text. And in fact, in the Greek translation of the Old Testament, the Septuagint, uh, which had been used widely around the time of Jesus, uh, there, that word was there. Do you see? God has totally preserved his word over a thousand years of it being copied and copied again and copied again by hand. There were basically three letters difference. One word that got left out. Isn't that incredible? It's unbelievable and unmistakable that God has preserved his word. Now, we could go on and on and on with the evidence for the reliability of Scripture and that the copy you and I have is the same as the copy that was originally written. There's no doubt about it. But, you know, uh, it's really up to you to make a choice about it. I could present you with more and more evidence along these lines, but at the end of the day, unless you choose to believe, unless you choose to have faith, no matter what I tell you, would ever be enough. 
There would always need to be more. And then, well, what about this? And what about this? And at some point, you just need to say, you know what? I, the evidence is overwhelming. And I believe. I believe. And, you know, if you do that, uh, John tells us this, that whoever receives his testimony, Jesus' testimony, whoever believes in him, in other words, sets their seal to this, that God is true. That God will prove himself to be true as you trust him by faith. Because, friends, uh, this book is the true word of God, and it's about his true grace. It's about his true grace. That's what Peter had just told us here. Uh, flip back to 1 Peter at the end of the book. He says, By Silvanus, Silas, a faithful brother, as I regard him, I've written briefly to you, exhorting and declaring that this is the true grace of God. See, this true word is about Jesus' true grace for you. Do you know what grace is? Grace is simply this. It's unmerited, undeserved, unearned favor. Unmerited. Undeserved. I should maybe say unearnable favor. Like, no matter what you do, no matter who, how good you are, you don't deserve God's grace, his favor. Because you, like me, are, are a sinner. You might be a pretty good person, but I don't think you're perfect. And only somebody who's perfect really uh, merits God's favor. And you surely could never earn it. Because even if you could earn God's favor, think about it. If you could earn his favor for today, maybe you do enough good things, you know, uh, you, you love him enough, you read his word enough, you, you help enough old ladies cross the street that at the end of the day, you realize, I've earned God's favor. He loves me. I finally did enough. Well, what happens tomorrow when you fail? And then you go, oh, no. I've, I've, I've turned from him and I don't have his favor anymore, so I guess I have to earn it again. But I don't have to just earn this much because that's what I earned yesterday and I blew it. So I, I probably have to do a little more to earn his favor today. And then... You blow it there, and then the next day it's a little more. And, and you see, it never ends. And you keep having to doing more, keep having to do, excuse me, more and more and more to earn his favor. That's religion. And you can never do enough. You cannot earn his favor. It's exhausting. And you can never do it. But grace, on the other hand, and the gospel is this, that Jesus Christ died in your place and in my place on the cross, free from sin, he took on my sin. He himself became sin so that I could have his righteousness and receive his favor. That's an incredible transaction, and it's all free, it's all gift. Paul describes it like this. We, we read it at the very top of the service this morning. For by grace... You've been saved through faith. This isn't your doing. This isn't your doing. It's the gift of God. It's not through works. It's not because you're good and it's not because you've done enough good things. It's, it's all grace. It's God's gift so that no one can boast. Because, you know, if, if I could earn it, you know what I'd be tempted to do? I'd always be comparing myself to you and going, oh, I, I did a little better than you did. Or I wouldn't do it that way. I would do it this way. And, and there's always this boasting and comparison and critique and it's never enough. And your only path to joy is trusting him and resting in his grace. 
See, friends, uh, this book is God's true word, and it's about his true grace. Do you know why? So that you can know his true peace. So that you can know his true peace. Let's continue uh, in Peter's closing to his letter here. He, he says, this is the true grace of God. Stand firm in it. Well, the only way you're going to stand firm in this word and on this true grace is by putting your faith in Jesus Christ. And it's going to be by his grace, right? Not, in, not of your own doing. Uh, stand firm in it. It reminds me of the, you know, you, you sang the song when you were a kid, right? The B-I-B-L-E. Is that's the book for me? Stand alone on the word of God. It's the final authority. B-I-B-L-E. Stand firm in it. And then he gives some final greetings. It says, she who is at Babylon. That's kind of weird. What's he talking about? But she, uh, some people think Peter's talking about his wife. I don't think that's the case. Because Peter was married. Did you know that? He did have a wife. I don't think that's what he's talking about. I think he's talking about, when he says Babylon, he's talking about Peter was in Rome. So when he says she, he's referring to if you trace it back in the text, I won't bore you with it, but it talks about the brotherhood, so the church. She, the church in Babylon, in Rome, he would have used this language potentially to avoid persecution unnecessarily. Um, but the church in Rome, who's likewise chosen, just like you, sends you greetings. Because remember, he's writing to churches. And so does Mark, my son. Mark was his, his son in the faith, just like Timothy was Paul's son in the faith. In fact, the gospel of Mark uh, many believe is actually Peter's account of the gospel that Mark wrote because Mark and Peter were so close. And Mark wrote it for Peter. But then he ends this. He ends the letter by, after uh, giving some final greetings, he says, greet one another with the kiss of love or with a holy kiss. Aren't you glad that some things in scripture are cultural? <laughs> I am too. Now, in some places in the world, this is still normal to greet one another with a kiss. But I think maybe if he's writing to us, do you think, what, what do you think he'd say? Would he say, greet one another with a good handshake? He might. But, I, you know, I think that's probably even a little too formal for what he's saying here. Because it's, a, and it's an act of affection among the people, of, of trust and of love. And so maybe more likely to us, he might say, if he's writing to the church at Wawasee, Peter might say, I greet one another with just a good hug. You know, to quote the famous theologian Tommy Boy, <laughs> brothers don't shake hands, brothers got a hug, right? I mean, and think about this. You give somebody a hug, is it easy for you to get mad at them and start an argument with them right after that? Or if you would greet them in Peter's day with a holy kiss, then to just get, you know what I'm saying? Like to, to truly love one another, to greet one another in that way care about one another. We're family. That doesn't mean there's not disagreements or arguments or like any other normal family. But at the end of the day, we're family. We love one another. Peter says, greet one another with the kiss of love. And then he ends saying, peace to all of you who are in Christ. And that's where we kind of end this letter. This is the true word of God, of his true grace to you, so that you would know his true peace that Peter leaves us with. And notice that peace is only available to you where? In Christ. It's not in 
civil peace or a constitution or a good career or a fat paycheck, even in relationship, it's in Christ. It's the only place you can truly know his peace. And all of our striving for peace in our lives and all those other areas are ultimately a, a longing for the peace that Jesus offers us. And you know, you can know that. And at the end of the day, the reality is that, that what you do, it's up to you. You have to make a choice. It's up to you. What will you do with God's true word of his true, true grace? Because the reality is what you do with it will determine your eternal true destiny. If you believe it, put your faith in Christ, all of his riches are yours. Not earned, not earned. But if you reject it and you do have that choice, in spite of the evidence, in, in spite of the way it has changed countless lives throughout history, if you choose to reject it and reject Christ, then you'll pay uh, the penalty for your sin under God's wrath, under Jesus' wrath, actually, for eternity. The choice is yours. No one can make it for you. Let me pray.